Welcome to this Mount Pleasant Baptist Church podcast recorded at our Burgoon campus. We're glad you've joined us and we pray that the Lord will speak to you and encourage you through this message. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. My name's Sue Ford, if you don't know me, and I serve on the pastoral team here. And today we continue our series, Grace Under Pressure about the life of Joseph. And the topic for today is when it all goes wrong, when you're in the middle of the mess. I was in a bit of a mess this morning when I turned up and got this contraption, this you know, microphone on, and then um, Charles held up the little device that I had to clip somewhere, and I thought, oh, I knew there was a reason I shouldn't have wore a dress today. So there was a solution found, but anyway. <laughs> of course... Life doesn't always turn out the way we'd hoped or anticipated. We have dreams and hopes and expectations that fall apart or just unfold very, very differently than we'd imagined. Some people have a bucket list, a list of things they dream about fulfilling in their lifetime. But sometimes their experiences just don't match their expectations. Well... Life for Joseph seemingly didn't go as he'd dreamed or anticipated either. Yet through it all, through all the circumstances, just as we sang, through it all, God was weaving his salvation story even when it all went wrong. We have three very short readings today from Genesis about three particular occasions in Joseph's life when everything went wrong. Thus spread across about 15 years of his life. So we'll be looking at quite a large part of Joseph's story and then see how it might apply to us. As we heard last week, Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons, his favourite son in a complicated family like so many families today. To show his love, he gets a very special ornamented robe, clearly a remarkable garment an amazing technicolour dream coat, according to Andrew Lloyd Webber's translation. At 17 years old, after tending the flock with his brothers, he went home and dobbed on them to his father. He, his being the obvious favourite and his characteristic telling of tales caused his brothers to become jealous and they hated him. Then, adding fuel to the fire, he had a dream which in his naivety and self-focus may be caused by his parents' obsessive attention, he unwisely told his brothers, telling them that one day they'd bow down to him. Not the sort of dream you tell your older brothers. They hated him even more. Then Joseph had a second dream, which again he audaciously told his family, and even his father was put out this time. The day came when Joseph was when Jacob was Jacob sent Joseph out on about a hundred kilometer trek to check on his brothers who were off grazing sheep. From afar his brothers saw him coming. They noticed the familiar gait of their baby brother, and then noticed his shimmering, unmistakable robe, the magnificent robe they despised. They looked up with hatred. He was alone. This was their opportunity. Their hatred was so intense, one can imagine they'd spent hours around the campfire talking about him. And they quickly came up with a plan to kill him. 
His oldest, eldest brother, Reuben, didn't want to bear the guilt of his death, so quickly revised the plan. And so we have our first reading, Genesis 37, 23 to 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Not the sort of welcome Joseph was hoping for. Joseph lay bruised and bleeding in the cistern as his brothers sat down to eat, probably the food Joseph had bought for them from their father. Words of his brothers later in the story helps us understand how Joseph felt at this time. We read later about words of his brothers. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Instead, they laughed, joked and feasted as they listened to Joseph's cries and pleadings. This visit to check on his brothers all went terribly wrong. On this occasion, Joseph's teenage arrogance, his overconfidence, his brashness, his lack of tact, combined with the favouritism of his father's father, got him into hot water. He didn't deserve what he got, but he did play a part. Despite his contribution, Joseph had good reason to be angry, self-pitying, to seek revenge. He could easily have played the victim card. After all, he had been affected by his father's polygamy and that yours, mine and ours parenting problem of mixed families. He'd been crippled by his father's unwise favouritism. He'd been excessively abused by his sinful brother's rage. And after all, God had given him the dreams. He was merely telling his brothers the truth. So the story goes on. The unexpected appearance of a caravan of Ishmaelites offered a solution, and Joseph found himself chained, probably on foot, walking the dusty roads on his way to Egypt as a slave. Betrayed by his family who hated him, separated from his beloved father without even a goodbye, to become a slave in a strange and foreign land. It is now some years later, after being sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt, Joseph is probably now in his mid-twenties, a slave working in the home of a high official in the Egyptian courts. His self-assurance, moulded by pain and suffering, combined with a steadfast trust in his God in a land of idolatry, caused him to prosper. Despite having reason to be bitter and twisted and to blame God for giving him such dreams and then abandoning him, we read that Joseph made a different and remarkable choice as he shuffled through the dust to Egypt. He chose to trust God and he worked hard at what he was assigned. He served with integrity and we read in Genesis 39:2, God was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. So much so that his master even noticed that the Lord was with him and so promoted him to the highest position in his household. The blessing of God was on everything he did. Alas, there was another who could not help but notice Joseph, but for other reasons. Potiphar's wife. We'll hear more about her, about her next week, but suffice to say, she tried to seduce Joseph. His response was, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
the God he loved and served, even in his dilemma. Despite Joseph's best efforts, the day came when she caught him out, and again his robe got him in trouble. As he fled, he left his robe, which was used as evidence for a false accusation made by Mrs. Potiphar to her husband against what she called, who she called that Hebrew slave that tried to sleep with me. Potiphar burned with anger against Joseph. And so our second reading comes from 39 verse, Genesis 39 verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Few situations could be worse than an Egyptian prison in 1500 BC. Joseph is back in the pit, now a slave and a prisoner. But Joseph is no 17-year-old bratish younger brother. He had done everything right this time. God is with him and honoured him in everything he did, we read. His character is refined. Did that keep him out of the pit? No. In fact, his honouring of God, his honouring his master, his doing the right thing put him in the pit. What might have been his response? God's abandoned me. God's not good. Where is God when I need him? God doesn't love me. Instead, we read that while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him. Joseph knew he was, God was present. God showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison ward. So much so that he was in time given great responsibility in the prison and again given success in all he did. Did it change his situation? Was he immediately released and reunited with his family? No, not at all. And now 11 long years have passed since Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph is now 28 years old, still in prison. When two high-profile prisoners join Joseph in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. The responsibility of their care was assigned to Joseph. One day, the now sensitive and compassionate Joseph, refined through his years of trusting God through his own hardship, he noticed their faces were downcast because of dreams they'd had. This lone Hebrew man, after 11 years of living in idolatrous Egypt, was not only sensitive to his fellow prisoners, but to his God. Standing in the face of the polytheistic, idolatrous beliefs of Egypt, he bravely declared that only God, his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, can give the interpretation of dreams. Owning his God, he interpreted that the cupbearer would be restored to his position in three days. Only three days. That seems so unfair after Joseph's years in prison for doing the right thing. He could have wondered about how much his God really cared for him, but we don't get an inkling of that. Joseph's quick thinking sought the cupbearer's favour and kindness, asking simply that he would remember him to Pharaoh on his release. You can just sense Joseph's rising expectation that there's at last light at the end of the tunnel, a way out of this despairing situation. 
I can imagine him waking up each morning, expectantly imagining he hears the jangle of prison keys or someone coming to release him. And each day, the sun rises and sets and nothing changes. And here is our third reading, Genesis 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He never gave him another thought. Joseph had gone out of his way to show kindness to the cupbearer, and one could rightly expect a little kindness in return. Instead, he was passed over, overlooked, taken for granted. Weeks, months, two years go by. Disappointment after disappointment, hopes dashed over and over, having now spent nearly half his young life in Egypt as a slave or prisoner. Most of you know the end of the story, but if you don't, you'll need to come back over the next weeks, because like any good series, we end on a note of suspense. Let's imagine ourselves in Joseph's shoes right now. Will he ever be released? Joseph is faced with such disappointment, the hopes of that dream becoming a distant memory. Many of you have had hopes dashed, hopes for yourself or those you love. Maybe you or someone you love is in that space right now, and if not now, one day you will likely find yourself there, in the pit, hurt and disappointed with life and with people, feeling like a victim of the past, feeling hopeless after many letdowns, not knowing how things will work out in your life. Like the young Joseph, we know that sometimes we've contributed to our messy situation. We've played some part in being where we are. It may not be entirely of our own, uh, own causing, but you can acknowledge you contributed. We know we all fall short, we all make mistakes. Maybe you married against good advice and now suffering the consequences. Maybe you were re reckless with your health and now suffering a serious health crisis. Maybe you realized you unintentionally made mistakes with raising your kids and now facing the consequences. Maybe you made a rash investment to make quick money and lost it all. Maybe you looked for a quick fix out of a problem and lied and cheated someone and now facing the results of that. Or maybe you're like the older Joseph, you've walked with God and you're suffering and being ostracized because of your honesty, because of your integrity and your right living. Because of your honesty, there's no promotion, there's no backhanded favor. You're discovering life can hold inequities and unfairness and even tragedy through no fault of yours, like so many suffering across our world because of COVID. Or maybe like the near 30-year-old Joseph, you feel forgotten, overlooked, taken for granted. You've gone out of your way to show kindness and care and compassion to others, and yet you've been overlooked yourself. Life has seemingly all gone wrong. How did Joseph endure? How did he not become despairing? How did he not become bitter and vengeful and angry as he faced the prospects of his own mistakes, the prospects of being abandoned by his family, the prospect of dying in prison and being forever forgotten by the ones he helped? 
We're going to look at three things we can learn from the story today. Three things we can do while we're in the pit. Those times when it seemingly has all gone wrong in our lives. Whether they're big things or small things. Firstly, we can be honest with God about how we feel. We don't really hear Joseph's lament to God, but we know that he was distressed and we know that God was with him. When we read God was with him and God blessed him, that's not a one-way stream. He obviously responded to that blessing in working with integrity. He listened to God to interpret the dream. Others noticed God was with him. So we can assume he talked with God and about God and poured his heart out to God as he walked that lonely road. Thankfully, God is quick to forgive as we seek his forgiveness for things we do and get wrong, for all our shortcomings. We need to do that first, seek his forgiveness. He can redeem any situation. Then it's not wrong to be honest with how we feel to God. This is prayer. Disappointment and hurt easily lead to anger if not addressed or expressed. Job's name is synonymous with suffering, suffering in his family, his health, with material possessions. Job questions God's fairness and goodness and love and even despairs of his life. We read his words, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Job prefers to live with the paradox that God, my God, he says, is still there, even though all evidence points against him being there. The Psalms, especially the lament Psalms, don't rationalise anger away or give abstract advice about pain. They give voice to how we feel in the times when everything goes wrong. They contain, in the words of Philip Yancey, anguished journals of people who want to believe in a loving, gracious, faithful God while the world keeps falling apart around them. Then we read in Psalms words such as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of, words of my groaning. And further on in Psalm 22, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. He obviously, the psalmist, is desperate. Jesus himself cried out these same words to his father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It gives us permission to ask, why, Lord? He understands our cry and knows how we feel anyway. Like Joseph, we may not get an adequate answer in the present, but we can nevertheless be honest and real with God. The undeserved suffering of Job, Joseph, and ourselves sometimes troubles us. To do right and get knocked down bewilders us. But the authors of the Lament Psalms cling to a belief in God's ultimate goodness, that things are not as they should be or as they will one day be, no matter how things appear in the present. Dan Allender, a Christian counsellor, says these words, 
The person who hears your lament and far more bears your lament against them, as God does, paradoxically is someone you deeply, wildly trust. The voice of lament is oddly the shadow side of faith. So talk to God. Keep relating to God in your suffering when it all goes wrong. As you sit in his presence, I guarantee your perspective will begin to change and glimmers of hope will begin to shine, even though your situation may not yet change. Secondly, we can know that God is always working in our lives and in our world. Like with Joseph, life is full of ambiguous situations. And just because hardships hit doesn't mean God is not at work. With Joseph, we have the luxury of seeing this. The brothers who were planning to destroy Joseph's dream, we discover later, actually played a major part in fulfilling the dream. As they did evil, God was working out his rescue mission and hope for that nation. And in the process, Joseph was being transformed. He was being prepared for something more that God had for him. God works through all the ambiguity and unknowns, even in our mistakes, and is weaving redemption into all our stories as we submit to him. That is one of the blessings, I think, as you grow older, as you have many more years to look back on, you begin to see God's goodness weaved into what were difficult times in your past. Times of feeling abandoned becomes times of knowing God better. Times of feeling overlooked or forgotten makes you aware of others who are not noticed. Times of pain help you notice and share the pain of others. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's not saying everything is good, but it can be worked for good. At times, complications will rise from our own sin, the sin of others and the sin of the world in which we live. Our dreams don't turn out. A diagnosis flips our life upside down. Someone is unfaithful to you. You suddenly realise you don't know your child anymore. Bankruptcy comes. But we have a great God who is always at work. God doesn't stop being God in these times. He is as much God then as ever. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was killed by the Orca Indians, those he went to tell about the love of Jesus, was left widowed with an 18-month-old daughter in the jungles of Ecuador. She says, He, that is God, is not all we would ask for if we were honest. But it is precisely when we do not have what we ask for and only then that we can clearly perceive his all-sufficiency. It is when the sea is moonless that the Lord has become my light. Yes, God doesn't give us all the little things we ask for all the time, but he is our all-sufficiency. Let your disillusionment with people and life turn you to the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. Throughout Joseph's life, he had learned this truth well. 
People will let you down, but God will never fail you. Let me tell you about this piece of art that I heard about recently. Mozambique was granted independence in 1975, and typically many groups were vying for control, such that between 1977 and 92, there was a bitter civil war with over a million people dying. Machine guns became part of everyday life. In 2006, a group of Mozambican Christian artists wanted to start making art that would tell stories about their hope for their people through the lens of the gospel. You can put the slide up, Dave, thanks. One piece stands in the British Museum today, a gigantic sculpture called the Tree of Life, alluding to the image of the Tree of Life in the book of Revelation. It's a bit hard to see there because it's so dark, but it's a huge sculpture. And the Tree of Life in the book of Revelation speaks of the healing of the nations. It's a symbol of renewed hope, of life restored, because of what Jesus has done. Amazingly, you can see in this small picture perhaps, it is made entirely of machine gun parts, machine guns that had been used in the war to kill people. This tells a story. Because of the gospel, there is hope. God is still at work. Yet this hope does not cancel out the tragedy, pain, suffering of sin in our world. Yet God, in his amazing grace, out of the tragedy, is able to weave a new story and make something beautiful. And we've heard that through Rebecca's story this morning. The cross is the great symbol of death. And yet to us, because of Jesus, it is the great symbol of life and hope. Just as God was was weaving his redemptive plan... Excuse me, through Joseph's tragedy, so he is working his redeeming grace into our lives and our world through us. God's ways are not our ways, but he is still at work when it seemingly all goes wrong. Paul writes from his prison cell to the Christians in Philippi For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And the third thing we can do and learn from Joseph is trust in God. When there is no answer to our questions and no explanation, we are called to trust. We read four times in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph in the pit, in the prison, and in his being forgotten. God did not forget him. We are called to trust that God is with us even when it doesn't feel like it. That is faith. Cling on to the tried and tested scriptures of those who have gone before you, like Isaiah when he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or the psalmist who says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob and Joseph is our fortress. Jesus, God in flesh, 
himself said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. J.I. Packer said, The popular idea of faith is of a certain obstinate optimism, tenaciously held in the face of trouble. If what we call our faith means what we think God ought to do about things, it won't last long when, it doesn't, when he doesn't do it our way. He says, it has been faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me that has held me in the darkest valley and the hottest fires and the deepest waters. He too was misunderstood, doubted, hated and finally nailed to a cross. Put your trust in him, not in circumstances, dreams, programs or plans, but in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel and many others. We don't yet know how our individual story will unfold. And as many of us know, even 24 hours can seem such a long time when we're in the pit. 86,400 long seconds that go ever so slowly at night time. As you lay awake wondering maybe where your child is, as you pray over a sick child, as you grieve a loved one, as you worry about some dilemma you're in. But we do know whose greatest story we are part of, God's story of his redeeming grace. The eternal God, creator of heaven and earth, is working out his loving eternal purposes in this world, in your life and the life of those we love. Jesus came, died, he defeated death and rose again. He has sent his spirit to be with us always as comforter, friend, companion. And we rest in the promise that one day, as Mia said earlier, there will be no more tears or crying or pain or death or heartache. Again, Paul from his prison cell says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on that day when Jesus Christ returns. When things go wrong in the middle of the mess, we have two choices. We can believe God is God, that he reigns, that he's in control and knows what he's doing, even though it makes no sense to us, or believe he's not God and we're at the mercy of mere chance. So I leave you with this age-old scripture from Deuteronomy. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, that is the God of the Israelites, our God, who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, the safe place, he's your hiding place, your sanctuary, your shelter, your haven, your stronghold. And underneath, that is underneath absolutely everything that comes your way, are the everlasting, eternal, strong, sure arms of our God. Here is our safe place. And let me encourage you to also find safe people to share the tough times with, to talk and pray with you, 
like a connect group or MP3. And if you want to pray or talk to a pastor, we're here. We want to help you. We want to walk the difficult roads with you. There are pastoral care cards at the info point if you want to fill them out or come and speak to us. Don't do the hard times alone. People and life are at times going to fail you, disappoint you, leave you hanging out to dry. Let that drive you to God and his grace. Joseph did, David did, Daniel did, Paul did. God is with you. Talk to him. Know he's always at work, even when it doesn't look like it. Trust in him. In his everlasting arms is the place of comfort, endurance and hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your goodness and your promises. Lord, I want to pray for those who are going through difficult times this morning, who feel that they're in the pit or the prison. Lord, who are struggling. Lord, I pray, first of all, we ask that you would change situations. Lord, we ask that, we always ask that and always hope that, that you would be at work and change things. But we also thank you that you're able to work your redeeming grace into even the worst of situations. When we're in the pit, you're able to work through that situation. Thank you that it was in the midst of the great injustice of the cross that you triumphed over sin and death. So in your love and grace, I pray that you would be present by your spirit with everybody who's struggling here this morning, Lord that you would offer your comfort, your strength, your hope and your sustaining grace. Lord, I thank you that we are never alone. You promise to always be with us. So would you help us keep our eyes fixed on you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear from you. If you would like prayer, please submit a prayer request at mounties.org.au forward slash prayer or send an email to communications at mounties.org.au and one of our team will be in contact. Have a great week.